All right. So just to review where we've been and where we're going. Yes, I will try to speak a little slower. I just get really excited about apologetics and I want to talk fast. Um, okay, so to review where we've been and where we're going. That's right. I'm going to drawl. If I talk slowly, my, my Dallas drawl is going to come out. And then you'll be sorry you asked. All right. So we have just covered presuppositionalism. Hopefully this is the last time I have to write that. We are now going to move into these walls or these columns called classical apologetics before we get into evidentialism. So the main distinction that we're going to make when we're talking about uh, these two, classical apologetics and evidentialism, Classical apologetics is so-called because it came, uh, as, we, as we talk about it today, it came out of thinkers from the medieval period. So the early churches, they were engaging in apologetics. They were engaging a lot in um, outside opposition of the Christian faith. So different views, heresies, objections to Christianity. As Christianity moved and the whole Roman Empire became Christian, there was a lot more time spent in, um, in speculation, kind of in that, in that first use, okay, of building up the faith of Christians. So it's also important to remember that when we're talking about a classical apologetics, that atheism as we have it today did not exist in the medieval period. So these are what we're going to talk about with classical apologetics is proofs for the existence of God. So this is um, a lot of times when people think of apologetics, this is what they're thinking of. But even these proofs are not, um, they're not offered in direct opposition to atheism. Okay. Um, one of, one of the uh, most famous apologists from the medieval period is a guy named St. Anselm. And he said that his endeavor was uh, faith-seeking understanding. Okay, have you heard that phrase before? Faith-seeking understanding. So he had faith already in God, and he was seeking to strengthen that faith. So this is that last function of apologetics. So he was, he was thinking and engaging in apologetics in a way that just made his own faith stronger. So it was faith-seeking understanding. Um, but classical apologetics is the, the difference between classical apologetics and evidentialism is classical apologetics is trying to prove the existence of God in a kind of abstract philosophical sense, okay? That there is a God. Usually what we mean, we mean by that is the omnipotent creator God. So that the creation was made by God. But that God is not necessarily Jesus, so just by establishing that God exists, that does not mean that you have uh, up here, what we're going to try and do is we're going to prove that the triune Christian God is the actual God that we established exist, existed with these classical arguments. Does that make sense? But that doesn't mean that classical apologetics is wrong. So this is the, the point that we discussed in our question and answer time, that um, really the gospel begins with the basis that God is the creator and God exists. Okay, if you can't establish that, that the creator God exists, 
then you cannot establish that that creator God has an objective standard of right or wrong. And then you cannot establish that someone has not obeyed that standard of right and wrong and is justly deserving of God's judgment. And then you cannot establish that the triune God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has enacted a plan of saving people that have disobeyed God's standard of judgment um, in a way where he is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. But that all comes back to the idea that God made everything and God made you, and God is the one that says how this works and says when you're sinning. Okay, so, so it's, wor- it's very worthwhile to prove that, that God does exist as kind of, that's why, you know, I said we've got the foundation of these presuppositions of worldview and reformed epistemology. Then we've got the walls, but the walls in themselves are not what we're aiming for. We're aiming to build this roof and prove that Jesus is, is Lord. Um, there's a good book that I'll recommend to you called Tell the Truth by uh, a guy whose last name is Metzger, Will Metzger. So that's, a, this is, that's more of a book about a, a, uh, evangelism and why and how to engage in evangelism. Really, really helpful. Um, commend that book to you. But as we talk about this idea of classical apologetics and in, in proving the existence of the creator God as a structure upon which we establish that um, Jesus Christ is Lord, I think we should look at Acts 17. So if you've got a Bible, go to Acts 17. I'm going to put these up on the screen because it takes forever. Because uh, we're going to read a lot of verses. But Acts 17, this is when Paul is in Athens and Paul stands up on Mars Hill, on the Areopagus, and he's addressing these other people there that have these different kinds of philosophies, and Paul engages in apologetics. And so I'm going to read verses 22 to 29. Oh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 22, I'll go to 31. Starting in verse 22 of Acts 17, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's kind of a presuppositional statement, isn't it? For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made, uh, the, God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I think that's the census divinitatis. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for... In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own po- or your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. Whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So do you see the bulk of that 
is Paul establishing, this is what God is like. Okay? And they, they were not, again, they were not atheists. They believed in lots of gods. But he's saying this is what you think God is like is wrong. God is the creator God, the one God that made everybody, and you're his offspring. He owns you. He is the one that will judge you according to his right standard. By whom? By Jesus. So he gets to Jesus at the very end, right? And he talks about the resurrection from the dead. But the bulk of that with these um, Greek philosophers is to establish the nature of who God is. So that is what we're going to be talking about when we engage in classical apologetics, kind of these classical uh, arguments for the existence of God. And let me, I'll just say this ahead of time, if you, I I almost hesitate to say this. This is probably where we're going to get the most heady and technical, okay? So if that last one was kind of heady and technical, this might feel a little bit more heady and technical. This is going to be the deepest that we go in. And let me just say, that's, that's good. If you're sitting here and you're like, I'm getting about every third word that you're saying, that's good. Okay? It's good to just jump into the deep end with some of this stuff and let it wash over you. I have been studying this stuff for years, and hardly any of it made sense the first time I looked at it. Okay? It's like you're painting a wall. You just put lots of coats of paint on it, and at some point, you realize that you learned it. Okay? So if this is the first time you've been exposed to some of this stuff, don't get frustrated. Don't get overwhelmed. Just kind of let it wash over you. Some of the words are going to stick. Some of it will not. Okay? But it's, it's good for all of us. All right? So I'm going to work through... Um, really three classical arguments for the existence of God. The first one comes from that guy that I mentioned, Faith Seeking Understanding, St. Anselm. So St. Anselm was an 11th century monk um, and from from Canterbury, right? I didn't write with you. I think he's from Canterbury. I can't remember. Um, somebody Wikipedia that and tell me after where Anselm was from. But he was in the 11th century, and he came up with an argument that's called the ontological argument. Ontological. Uh, on, this word ont, ontolos mean, has to do with being. So this is kind of an argument from being or from existence. Um, I'll say right now, I have never found the ontological argument very convincing. Um, I've, I have hardly understood it. So, but it's very important philosophically. So this, um, again, was in the 11th century, and it has been talked about ever since. So it's important for you to know, even if, if you have been one to faith in Jesus Christ through the ontological argument, raise your hand. I cannot wait to meet somebody. I know somebody out there has, has been one, one to Christ through this argument. But um, what the ontological argument is, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, is predicated on Anselm's definition of God, which is famously that than which nothing greater can be conceived. So that's how he defined God. That than which nothing greater can be conceived, or that which nothing greater can be thought. Okay, that's a good definition of God. That's kind of like if you think about infinity in, on a number line. Okay, you think about numbers, and numbers just go on and on and on. Think of the highest number that you can think of, and then add one. Right? Well, that's suddenly the highest. So, so God is, if you can think of something great, add one to it. And, it, and, it's, and that's God. Okay? That God is, is the greatest thing. It's that you can't think anything greater than that. That's a good definition of God. What Anson argues is that to exist in reality is better than to exist in conception only. So if to 
exist in the mind, this conception of the great as being then, th- that then which nothing greater can be thought, if that's great, to add one to it would be to go from existing in the mind to existing in reality. Okay, so it's greater to exist in reality than to not exist or to exist in the mind only. Therefore, God exists. That's the ontological argument. Um, it's actually sort of a circular argument because it, it assumes that existence is, uh, is a predicate of divinity and that it's necessarily better, which he doesn't prove in the argument. So it's question begging. So it's open to um, kind of logical fallacies. And like I said, I've never really found it super satisfying, but people have talked about it ever since. So ontological argument. There it is. Now let's get on to some good arguments. Uh, in the 13th century, we really take off. There's a theologian named Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, some of you are grunting. We love Thomas Aquinas. He's really cool. Um, he wrote a book. That's a U. Let me just do this again. Summa. People just call it the Summa. It's the Summa Theologica. Uh, he wrote a book that was really, it's huge, and um, I was trying to get Deb Sanderson to buy it for me, and she wouldn't do it. But it's, it's kind of like the compendium of all Catholic thought, medieval you know, Christian thought at the time. And in one little place in that, he gives uh, five, it's called the five ways. So he gives five arguments for the existence of God. And um, they are really based on the philosophy, how do I, I did it wrong, Aristotle. Um, they're based on the philosophy and logic of Aristotle, which had just been translated into Latin not too long before. So there had been this dark ages where nobody was reading Aristotle, and then they rediscovered Aristotle, and, it, and things just blew up. So he, he gives these five arguments for the existence of God. They really just break down into two categories. So the first is called the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Um, Cosmos is the word for world or universe or creation or order. So it is an argument that's based on looking around at the, the universe as it is and then reasoning back to the, the causes of that universe. So the cosmological argument is really uh, something like a causal argument. Um, and four of the five ways that Aquinas talks about are cosmological arguments. So as, as an example of a cosmological argument, um, Aristotle was actually the one that talked about everything being in motion. Okay, So if you look at the created order, everything is moving all the time. And we know that more than Aristotle did, that we see that every part of us involves movement. Okay, Our atoms are moving. Everything is moving around. Well, something has to start at rest and then is acted on to start moving. And then movement is just a sequence of things bumping into each other and causing more things to move. And so Aristotle very famously had this concept of an unmoved mover. That if you follow that sequence of movement all the way back, you have to go to something that started everything moving. And that was what Aristotle called God and Aquinas Similarly said, this is God. Similar idea is, is cause and effect, okay? That everything is caused by something acting on it. So not, you know, this, the first was just a movement, things moving. Brought, more broadly, we can say everything um, has a cause, so there must be an uncaused 
cause. Again, that would be God. So in, in, in a sense, that's just, that's the cosmological argument. You are appealing to the fact that everything comes from something else. So where did this all come from? That goes back to that presuppositional question. Why is there something instead of nothing? What caused all of this? Well, there has to be something outside of the cosmos. There has to be something transcendent and different from the cosmos that acted on the cosmos to cause the cosmos to be the way that it is. And what what would we call that thing that's outside of the creation, that's acting on the creation, causing the creation? God. Okay? Not necessarily Jesus, not necessarily, but we would call that God. So, that's a good line of reasoning. You can just sit down with your friends. Say you're talking to someone that is a secular materialist. Okay, you know what I mean by a secular materialist? They do not believe that there's anything transcendent. There's not any kind of God. There's not anything but the material world that exists. Just atoms spinning. That's all that there is. Um, and, you know, even things like goodness, truth, beauty, those are all just chemical firing of the atoms and neurons in our own brain. There's nothing transcendent. All there is is what there is. So you could ask this secular materialist. Again, we're asking questions. We're having a gentle, respectful conversation with somebody. But you ask, so where did all this come from? If all there is is matter, if there's nothing outside acting on the universe, if all there is is the universe, where did the universe come from? And then they might say, well, you know, the Big Bang. And I think somebody that appeals to the Big Bang is actually proving our point, because the Big Bang is a beginning, isn't it? The Big Bang, as we study the universe, means that everything at one point was somewhere, and then it banged, okay? Something, does, does your car ever just turn on randomly by itself, okay? Explosions don't explode themselves. Something acted on that explosion, okay? And so very few, uh, you know, I bring that up. Most people that have really formulated these arguments will not appeal to the Big Bang um, because it proves our point, right? And, and so they're, they're in intellectual honesty saying, yeah, nothing comes from nothing, right? And so then you say, okay, well then, where? where did, and you're just asking, okay, is it just turtles stacked on top of turtles for all of eternity? I mean, is that how it works? And, and so they have to have something. What was before the Big Bang? What acted on the Big Bang? The most common argument that you'll talk to if you talk to somebody that's really committed to secular materialism is something called the multiverse, Okay, which assumes an infinity of different universes that somehow are acting on each other in different ways and causing more things. And, and so then I would just ask that person, okay, what's your empirical proof for the existence of the multiverse? Well, they have none. And so then I say, okay, so you are appealing to something infinite and eternal of which there's no empirical proof, and you're saying that I'm wrong for doing that. Okay? We're actually both appealing to something that we can't prove with our eyes, that we can't test with science, that we're saying is infinite. So then it's just a question of what's more plausible, a multiverse of, you know, whatever, or that the God as he's spoken to us in the Bible is actually the creator God, okay? But again, that's a cosmological argument. You're just working back to where did this all come from? How did this all get here? Another, I, I consider this along the lines of a cosmological argument, um, is an idea called biogenesis. Mostly, I just think this is really interesting. I don't know if this actually is a helpful argument to have, but um, bio, so life, genesis, the start of, where did life come from? Okay, so we can believe in a multiverse, we can, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
that's great. That does not explain the existence of life. Okay, so just because you can say you know where all the atoms came from, you don't, that does not necessarily mean that DNA would come to exist and that life would come to exist and that all of the life forms that we have on this planet would come to exist the way that they have come to exist. Where did life come from? So here in Albuquerque, what's it called? It's right next to Explora. It's the natural, is it the Natural Science Museum? Natural History Museum? Okay, it's got the dinosaurs out, outside. Go there um, if you haven't. And uh, there's a whole floor that is, that is dealing with this question of biogenesis, okay? There's a whole floor where they're saying, where they're asking, because they have to ask that question, where did life come from? And it's fascinating if you go around, they have no idea. And they admit that they have no idea. They have theories, okay? But they, but they can't prove any of them. But the, the theories are that at some point in the development of planet Earth, there was some sort of goo that contained certain kinds of chemicals in it and the conditions in that goo and outside of that goo somehow led to a spark okay so at the natural history museum they're like maybe it was a lightning bolt maybe it was something like you know some other activity a volcano or vents or something like that some kind of energy spark came in hit this primordial ooze and that turned these chemicals into amino acids that arranged themselves in the most complex structure of DNA that could be conceived. And then that started replicating itself, and, and that's where life came from. So it was just a total accident of goo in uh, a puddle that got struck by lightning. Okay. If that's all it was, you guys at Sandia could have figured that out a long time ago. Right? There are some, some smart people in this room. Go do it real quick. If it was that easy to just happen accidentally, we should be able to recreate that in a laboratory, no problem. We can't. If, if somebody has done that, that would, that would be all anybody was talking about for the next 100 years. Okay? We, we can't. So if it was something that could just happen accidentally, we could have recreated it already. Okay? Um, because they, you know, that, that argument is pretty apparent. So I'll just follow something. Where did the, all this life come from? The Bible says it was from God. And, uh, and that, you know, actually, I don't know if they talk about this in the Natural Science Museum. Um, this thought just struck me, so I haven't, I can't remember who was the one that said it. But uh, a few really respected scientists have said the only explanation for life on Earth is that it came from aliens. Right? Yeah. That it, um, what's it called? Exo, exogenesis? Exogenesis. Uh, yeah, because life on Earth um, could, there's, there's not an explanation for it, given what we know about the development of Earth. And so it must have come from outside. So aliens or Jesus, right? You know, again, we're, we're, we're getting to these points where we're appealing to the same stuff. You just don't want, if God is the one that did it, you're accountable to God. If it's aliens, then who cares, right? You can go and live your life the way you want to. So, so that's the issue. You got thoughts on Yeah, right. Yeah, and we'll and we'll talk about that actually. In a, yep. So the last, uh, just kind of in this cosmological realm, I want to talk about one more thing. That this is probably the most current articulation of the cosmological argument is called the fine tuning argument. And this is also really exciting and and kind of scientific. But um, the fine tuning argument, and it's kind of hard to explain. And give and give the right um, 
weight to what we're talking about. But imagine, let's, let's say um, I, that I've got a house plant, okay? Um, I took the house plant and I put it in a pot. And the pot I knew needed to have the right kind of drainage so that that plant could um, be watered the right way. But I've got this little house plant in a pot, and I know that this house plant needs to live in a certain temperature range or it will die. And so I keep my thermostat. This is not the only, I don't set my thermostat according to my house plants, but I, I know that this house plant needs to exist in a certain range, and so I keep my thermostat set to a certain temperature. And I know that this house plant needs a certain amount of sunlight, not too much, but not too little. And so I place it on a table in a window where I know it's going to get the right amount of sunlight. And I also know that it needs a certain amount of water. And so I water it on a certain rotation. I know that there is a very limited window of conditions under which this house plant can live. And I have killed plenty of house plants. Okay. So I am trying to act and orchestrate the conditions around this houseplant's existence in such a way that it will continue to live. The fine-tuning argument comes from observations of the universe. And as scientists have studied the way that the universe works, they say, wow, there are a surprising number of factors that, that say that the conditions of the whole universe... So we're talking about factors like the laws of the universe, like the law of gravity and the constant of gravity and the constant of the electromagnetic forces that hold the, the universe together. Different factors um, around the whole existence and condition of the universe seem to have been narrowed to this very narrow window in such a way that it's actually sustainable for life. Okay? So like I said, this gets a little technical. Um, let me read this. This is maybe, maybe articulate it a little bit better. So this is from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, as they are articulating this fine-tuning argument. They say, According to many physicists, the fact that the universe is able to support life depends delicately on various of its fundamental characteristics, notably on the form of the laws of nature, on the values of some constants of nature, and on aspects of the universe's conditions in its very early stages. Let me read this. This is from the same article. Um, I can show you this after within this are cited a number of, of different physicists okay, that have made these arguments. Um, they say, just, just talking about one of those conditions, this is, we're talking about the strength of gravity. So the force of gravity that, that is constant, that dictates how certain particles are attracted to one another. It says this, the strength of gravity, when measured against the strength of electromagnetism, seems fine-tuned for life. If gravity had been absent, okay, we could live in a universe where there was no gravity. If gravity had been absent or substantially weaker, galaxies, stars, and planets would not have formed in the first place. Had it been only slightly weaker, and, our, and or electromagnetism slightly stronger, main sequence stars such as the sun would have been significantly colder and would not explode in supernova, which are the main source of many of the heavier elements which we're made of. If, in contrast, gravity had been slightly stronger, stars would have been formed with smaller amounts of material, which would have meant that inasmuch as still stable, they would have been much smaller and more short-lived. Again, so they would not have produced the kind of elements that produce life. 
So they, that's just talking about one thing, the force of gravity. Then they go on and on in the article to talk about other things, the strong and weak electromagnetic force, the rate of expansion of the universe after the Big Bang. And what somebody has described is it's like if you're looking at the universe, there are a number of dials. Okay, Chris is back in the back looking at us, working on the soundboard, and he's got all these crazy dials and things, and he's, each one of these acts independently of the other. And it seems like as we look at the universe, things like the force of gravity and the strong and weak electromagnetic force and the rate of expansion, all of these independent things have been tuned just so in such a way that life was inevitable. Okay, that the development of everything that it takes for us to exist, just like that houseplant, just like I'm making sure that the conditions for the existence of that houseplant. Houseplants don't have consciousness, right? But what if my plant suddenly developed consciousness and I wasn't in the room? And he says, boy, I'm, I'm sure glad that, that I've got the right kind of drainage in my pot. That was a lucky accident. And I'm really glad that the temperature in this place never seems to get outside of the realm of my existence. That sure was good luck. And I'm really, really glad that I get the right amount of sunlight. That was, that was really good fortune for me. And we say, look, you know, as these things start to stack up on top of themselves, you say, maybe there's somebody taking care of that houseplant. Right? And it's the same with the, the cosmological argument based on this fine-tuning argument, that as we look at the universe, it seems like there is a God that wanted us to be here. Isaiah says that, that God did, make, did not make the universe void. He made it to be inhabited. And so that fine-tuning argument, as we can look at it, we can say, um, yeah, it really seems like God wanted us to be here because this could have been made in a number of different ways, and then we wouldn't be able to live. We wouldn't be able to exist. I will say, in all intellectual honesty, and then I think I saw a question. Were you going to ask me about the anthropic principle? Okay, we'll talk about that, and then we'll get there. Wouldn't put it past you. Um, so if you bring up the fine-tuning ar argument, you will get this. And you might get this from other people. It's called the anthropic principle. Anth anthropic is the word for man. Um, like anthropology, right? Um, so the anthropic principle would look at all of those conditions, say, yeah, things have been fine-tuned in such a way that it seems like we, it was inevitable that we would be here. And, and it says, well, of course we would say that because we are here. And if we hadn't been here, there wouldn't have been anyone around to observe and comment on that. But they would say, it is just an accident. It's a really fortunate accident that we're here, and it just seems significant to us because we won the lottery. And we look back and we say, wow, it seems like things could have been a number of other ways. And they say, well, they could have been. But we got the one in a bajillion chance that it worked out that it worked out this way. And so you still don't have an argument. It's just a really good accident. They call it, it's like an observer bias, right? Um, the, and, it, and it gets, once you know somebody's making the anthropic principle argument, you know it's happening. And it's kind of it's hard to get until they're making it. But um, a, a philosopher named John Leslie gave a good parable to kind of think about this. He calls it, it's called the firing squad parable. And so what, what the firing squad parable says is say that you are um, set to be executed by a firing squad. And there's 50 men, trained marksmen. They're standing in front of you. They've all got a gun pointed at you. And you're standing there. And you've got your blindfold on. And they say, ready, aim, fire. Every one of them fires their gun. And every one of them missed. Okay. Um, and so the anthropic principle would say, okay, well, think about how many executions these marksmen make. Um, inevitably, one of them is going to miss sometimes, okay? And this just happened to be the one time where all 50 of them missed. And 
you only seem, you're, you're only remarking on that. You're only saying that that seems intentional because you lived. If you had died, you wouldn't be able to say that. So that's it. That's all it is. And good on you. Go on your way. And you say, well, okay, I guess technically that's possible. What, but what seems more likely? That all 50 of them just happened to miss at the same time or that they were intentionally missing me? Right? And, and the, these fine-tuning um, principles in the existence of the universe work along that order. Okay? So I guess we could sit back and we could say, maybe this was an accident that everything turned out this way. But, um, but that, I, that, that just doesn't seem very plausible. And also, that principle, the anthropic principle, is based on this idea of an infinite number of opportunities. Okay, so it kind of goes back to that multiverse idea that um, that there's an infinite number of universes. So somebody said, like, if you flip a coin um, an infinite number of times, it's inevitable that you're going to get a certain sequence of heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, heads, tails, you know. So over 100 times, that may not be very likely, but over an infinite number of times, yeah, you could get every sequence that you would look for. And so they say if there's an infinite number of universes, we just happened to be in the one that was able to sustain life. That doesn't mean that God exists. Again, um, that would be appealing to something eternal and infinite of which there's no empirical proof. Um, so I would just come back to that and say, well, my infinite eternal thing talks to me. So let's see what he says before we consider the multiverse. And then as Herman Boving said, I love this. Um, he said that no amount of throwing letters what did he say? Accidentally throwing thousands of letters together never produced a single Iliad. Um, you know what the Iliad is? It's an epic poem written by Homer. Okay, so, so yeah, if you're considering just chance and, uh, you know, probabilities and things like that, still, if you look at the remarkable nature of our existence, this is not just flipping heads or tails. I mean, this is incredibly complex, incredibly intricate, incredibly intentional. And so... There's really, I, I think it's still just unfeasible, especially if you think about, like, um, you don't throw, how would you say this? Uh, sand art. Have, have you ever seen sand art? Um, we, yeah, they do sand art here, right, in, in New Mexico. So I saw some, um, some sand art. Okay, if you, every one of those is a little grain of sand that's colored. Well, if I just took all of those grains of sand and I shook them up, how many times would I have to shake it before it looked like sand art? Hey, things don't work like that. Things move towards entropy and chaos and decay. They don't move towards order and complexity and intention. And I think the universe testifies to there being an, an active uh, creator involved in that process. So, yeah, let's take it. About the Iliad, Herman Bavink. B, um, B A V I N C K, right? He was a Dutch Reformed theologian in the 19th century. Wrote a great systematic theology, if you're interested, a four-volume systematic theology. Just, they just translated a book called Christian Worldview. That's really short, and that's what that comes from. That's really good. If you're, in, if you're into this stuff, that book, Christian Worldview by, by Herman Bavink, um, really good. Okay, there were a couple of questions before we move on. Yes, ma'am. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So she asked, uh, is there a reason that God didn't tell us more about what the universe is like in a way? Um, that's a good question. I don't know that I can answer with a lot of authority on that. I do think, I think it was Thomas Aquinas that, that sort of talked about there being two books that we study as Christians. There's the book of creation and then the book of the Bible. And so there's a lot about creation that, that God has set up in such a way that it's knowable to us apart from God having to tell us what it's like. And then actually there's parts in the Bible that talk about our discerning knowledge from observation as being a way that God himself is teaching us. Um, so it doesn't all have to come from the book, right? Um, so, so I think that there is part of it. I also think that um, I, I, like, I'll tell this a lot with students because they'll have a lot of questions about creation, especially like the beginning of the universe and things like that. And um, this is what I usually do, and it's kind of snarky. But I'll hold up, you know, the first couple of pages, you know, of Genesis 1 and 2, and I'll say, this is where it talks about the world being created. This is where it talks about how God fixed what we broke. What do you think is more important to God? You know, what, do, what, what should we really be spending our time thinking more about? You know, so it's not to say I've spent a ton of time thinking about science and I love science. I love all of this stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think that's part of it is it's just studyable. It's observable. That's a, another, I didn't say that before, but um, that's another common presuppositional argument is that, which I don't know, you can d agree or disagree, um, but that science, the principles that, modern Western science are built upon are Christian principles. And so there's a reason that science developed out of a predominantly Christian culture because it assumes the knowability and the predictability of the universe, which if you actually study other religions, does not presume that, okay? It does not presume that the world acts in a consistent way. They think like, well, a demon could have moved that off of the table and so my experiment's not reproducible. But Christianity doesn't really act that way. It acts in a way where the world is knowable and consistent and observable and makes sense. It coheres together because God is coherent. And out of that arose scientific development. So maybe that answers your question. I don't know. Do you have a question? You good? Okay. Okay, so um, we're going to move on to the last of Aquinas's arguments, and then we'll be done. Um, and this is what is called a teleological argument. Teleological. So telos means uh, goal or end points. Um, where this is where this is headed. So if the cosmological argument is based on causation and things at the beginning, the teleological argument is looking at purpose and where is this going. So um, the way that Aquinas described it is if, imagine you see an arrow flying through the air and it hits a bullseye. Um, you know that the arrow did not dictate that it was going to hit the bullseye. You know that the arrow is an inert thing. It has no intelligence. It has no will. So something else was acting on that arrow in such a way that it would fulfill the purpose of hitting the bullseye. So seeing an arrow hit a bullseye presumes an archer. And that is his argument for the existence of God. Um, this was most famously developed in the modern era by a man named William Paley, who was... Uh, uh, 19th century um, British philosopher and, and theologian. And he was the one that, he wrote a book called Natural Theology. And he was the one that first used the phrase of uh, the divine watchmaker. 
if you've heard that. So he has a parable where if you're walking in, um, in a field and you look down and you find a pocket watch and you pick up the pocket watch in the middle of, otherwise nature is all around you, but you find a pocket watch and you look at it and you say, wow, this, this has been shaped. And then you open it up and you see the, the gears inside and you see each one of these gears seems to have a purpose and it's acting in a way that is accomplishing some role, some greater end. And then you look at the watch itself and you realize this this has a function. It tells time. This was made to fulfill the purpose of telling time. You look at that watch and you don't think, this just grew up like all these flowers in this field. You say, no, this was made by a watchmaker. And what Paley went on to say was that there are lots of things when you observe in the creation that are so complex and seem so purposeful that they presume a divine watchmaker. So Paley very famously used the example of the human eye. If you study the human eye, you know, the human eye has a number of, I don't even know why I'm trying to do this because I don't know how the first thing about how eyes work. Um, but, you know, you've got, you've got the, the lens of your eye and then you've got the stuff and, and light comes in like this and then it does that. And, and somehow that all works together. So my mom works at an optometrist's office, too. Like, I should know a little bit more about, about eyes. But there's a lot happening. There's a lot happening in an eye. And, uh, and so it is, you know, to study it, it is of the same kind of complexity that a watch would be. And so Paley would say that, what, you know, that, that eyes do not just um, develop. You know, like, there's not, there's not a half step between no eye and eye. Either you have an eye or you don't have an eye. And that kind of complexity and that kind of purposefulness that this is accomplishing something is evidence that God exists, just like that arrow hitting the bullseye. So um, that that really held for a long time. That view, that view held uh, for about a generation. And then you got a guy named Charles Darwin, also British, read natural theology, was... Um, very familiar with Paley's arguments, and he he offered a different theory that these even incredibly complex things can come about through a process of natural selection, of slow development. And that's, you know, even if you look at, there are um, certain animals that do not have fully formed eyes the way that we do, but they have more of a sensitivity to light than not. And so you can conceive of these gradations, these gradual steps of things improving from from no eye to eye, that that complexity did not prove a watchmaker. And that's why, um, as Darwinian thought has developed, there was, uh, just in the last generation, a man named Richard Dawkins, and he wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker. So what was he referencing? He's referencing William Paley's argument, and he's saying that um, evolution, Darwinian evolution, actually disproves the idea of the watchmaker theory, the idea that things are so complex that they can't be explained except for um, someone acting outside of that. And that's really been the debate ever since. If you've ever debated with somebody that holds really firmly to, to evolution, it's, that's what it comes down to. Is the complexity in this life explainable by natural processes, gradual natural processes given enough chance and enough time these things would just happen inevitably, or are they a proof that God exists? And I say that's the debate. I bring up none of these proofs are conclusive in and of themselves, okay? So you're not going to come back with the watchmaker argument and convince someone that's a Darwinian evolutionist that, that they're wrong, okay? But that's the question, and we're, so we're trying to answer. So, some, you know, I think Paula brought up, like, how do you 
how do you engage with this one thing? Well, you're really just engaging one thing to keep the conversation going and going to other directions. Darwinian theory has no expla explanation for biogenesis. Okay? Darwinian theory might be a good argument for the teleological argument, but it's not a good argument for the cosmological argument. And so you just broaden that category. Okay, Darwin could not explain how life started. The origin of species is not about the origin of life. It's about the origin of different species, of different kinds of birds and, and things like that. Okay? Um, another thing that I will say, I don't want to get too up in the weeds about Darwinian evolution. This would just, it's a good topic. Maybe we'll do another seminar that's just focused on evolution and, and the things like that. Some of, um, some of the arguments are, are not invalid, right? This idea of natural selection, the idea of gradual changes over time, you know, especially given geographic separation and different, um, different things like that. I mean, Darwin was really reading the book of nature. He was really looking closely at the way things work and things like that. Darwinian evolution, it, it's interesting if you look into that. Darwinian evolution still cannot explain um, what's called speciation. So Darwin, even Darwin was kind of stumped. You know, he's like, I can explain why some birds have bigger beaks than other birds, okay? And I would assume that if that process was allowed to continue, it would lead to the point where you have, you know, a bird and a turtle. Like they have evolved and changed so much that they become totally different animals. But he couldn't figure out, he couldn't observe that. He couldn't prove that. And I was just for this doing some research. They still can't prove how and why that happens. They have some theories, but they can't explain how you go from animals showing different traits. Do well, This is what we call microevolution. You ever heard somebody say that, that we can explain microevolution, like these subtle changes and adaptations depending on outward, um, outward acting on species, but we, we still can't quite explain how um, those micro steps turn into macro steps to the point where one animal is entirely separate from another animal. So take like a tiger and a lion. If you ever go to the zoo and you look at a tiger and a lion and you're like, those things are really similar. And even as we go, genetics has really changed our understanding of evolution and, and Darwinian theory. Okay, So even if you look at genetics, you say there's a lot genetically that's similar between a tiger and a lion, but a tiger and a lion are not the same thing. A tiger and a lion cannot have a baby. Actually, they can have a baby, and it's called a liger, and it's amazing. But ligers are like mules, a horse and a donkey, right? They're sterile. So you get one, but that's not a separate species, okay? Tigers and lions are so distinct that they cannot reproduce with one another. They can only reproduce within themselves. There's definitely a difference between a tiger and a goldfish, right? How did that happen? We really don't know, according to Darwinian theory. But I do think it's interesting when God... And Genesis 1 is making all the animals, what's it say? He made them according to their kinds. And it seems that speciation reinforces itself, that species stay much more stable than evolving, which kind of breaks the theory. So I'm not saying that's a slam dunk argument either, but um, I will say this. If you talk to most people that bring up evolution as an argument apologetically, they don't have a very good understanding of evolution as it stands today. Okay? There is a kind of very commendable scientific and intellectual honesty for people that are engaging with evolution, and they will say, there's a lot we don't know. Okay? But most people, when they're bringing up evolution, they talk about it like it's a grand theory of everything. And they will talk, listen, when they talk about evolution, they talk about it like it's God. They talk about it like it's this beautiful thing acting to orchestrate and coordinate and bring about biodiversity. They have a reverence for evolution that, um, that real scientists don't have. Okay? It's ordinary people that think they know what evolution is that, that kind of do that. So go again. Go to the Natural History Museum. They worship evolution. Read around and look at it and just read. And it's like, man, I could put God in the word for evolution, and this sentence would read the exact same way. 
okay? And I don't think that that's a very good understanding of our, our knowledge of evolution right now. So that's the, the teleological argument, is this argument from design. And again, just back up. I love, again, that, that Bavink quote, okay? You never throw thousands of letters and produce one Iliad, okay? Just stop and look at the diversity and the complexity of, of our world. It should lead us to worship. It should, for, for those of us who are Christians, that should strengthen our faith. There's no way, there's no way that this is an accident, okay? There's no way that, um, that this kind of complexity and diversity and sustained life, there's, there's no way that that could just be random. Um, and, there's, and there's something, I think, that's, that speaks to all of us that tells us all of that. Let me recommend one more book to you. It is called Reason for the Hope Within. And that's edited by Michael J. Murray. M-U-R-R-A-Y. Uh, Michael Murray. Alvin Plantica actually wrote the foreword. Um, but this book is, uh, it has a lot of different contributors. And just about every chapter is dealing with sort of a different proof. Um, and, it's, and it's as up-to-date as can be. Okay, so it's not... It's, it's doing deference to Aquinas and to some of these other articles, but it's really dealing with the debate as it is now, philosophically and scientifically and things like that. that there's a great chapter about the fine-tuning argument, if that's interesting to you, that goes through all of the different, you know, kind of specific things. Michael Murray, yeah, he is. Um, I can't remember where. I think Biola. I think a lot of the guys in there are from Biola, but I can't remember. I could be wrong. Um, so that's the classical apolo apologetics, okay? Those three... Arguments, the ontological, the cosmological, and the teleological, as we're engaging in questions about the existence of God, those are usually the ones, even today, that philosophers are dealing with. And then the fourth would be the moral argument, which is what I was talking about from C.S. Lewis, right? That C.S. Lewis says, we all have a definition of right and wrong that we appeal to outside of us. Therefore, there must be an outside lawgiver that, that exists. That those, those four, even today, going all the way back to the 11th century, those are still the ones that we're engaging with. So now you know about them, and you can be a part of that conversation. Okay? Any questions about these classical arguments? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, so he was asking um, about really other proofs that are more epistemological and philosophical, um, which I was just talking to a good friend about, that uh, the, the idea of consciousness even raises questions of God's existence and uh, at least forces us to evaluate our presuppositions, the fact that we think that we have a sense of I that we refer to, you know, to, to go to Rene Descartes. Um, who kind of reduced everything to, I know I exist. I think, therefore, I am. Um, and then he actually went on to say that I know that I exist, and I, and I have an idea of God. And there's no way that a finite person like me could have a concept of the infinite unless it was put there by the infinite. And so he made kind of an argument from consciousness, in a way, to, to the, the proof of the existence of God. Beauty is another one. I've heard of a number of guys that are actually using beauty... Um, as an apologetic proof for the existence of God. That why do we have a, an understanding, a shared understanding that some things are beautiful and some things are not beautiful. Kind of similar to the moral argument, right? Um, so 
yeah, not going to get into any of that. I don't feel particularly equipped in a lot of that, but those are other great areas of study. Lynn? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So she she was asking about like reproduction and, and procreation. Um, again, you know, this is the this is the neat thing where I have a lot of sympathy for um, for scientific arguments, right? Where if you look at the the just the particulars of how we go from uh, one kind of cell and another kind of cell coming together and then they multiply, there is a kind of a self-generating process in that, right? Like, it's, it's, it's made to work this way, right? And, and it happens naturally. It does happen naturally, right? It happens. It's, it's not like there's some mysterious step where there's a curtain and then all of a sudden a baby comes out. You know, like, you can watch and you can see, no, these cells come together, the chromosomes do this, the DNA does this, and then it starts writing this, you know. And so I think that's one, kind of to go back to, to your question, if you look at nature... Um, so this is, this is how I think about it. This may not be helpful. I went to art school and there was, um, there's, there's an idea that, uh, that was developed. It's a classical idea for art that says it is true art to conceal art. So as you're doing art, you don't want to call attention to your art. You, you don't want people to, you don't want people to look at your painting and say like, man, his brushstrokes are awesome. You want them to stand back and say, this painting is incredible. This, what this is portraying is incredible. I think God is an artist in that way. And so I think there are lots of things where we look, and if we're not thinking about God, we're not seeing his artistry. It's not obvious, right? It's this, and that's what makes it beautiful, that there's this natural process. Trees just grow. Babies are just born, okay? Things just work the way that they do. It's this perfectly integrated machine. But then we believe that God is sustaining that and upholding that together and that God is the one that even conceived of all of that in his mind before it happened, okay? So so that's the thing. That's how, you know, you can look back and, and a scientist can just look at this and say, this is all just cause and effect. This is all just one thing hitting another thing hitting another thing that leads to this. And it's amazing that that happens, okay? And, and they would, you know, a lot of them say, what a happy accident. And that's where we're like, really? You know? And we go back to the first cause and and things like that, but, but yeah, it's, I, I'm not unsympathetic to the idea that this is all just looks like cause and effect, and it's amazing. Um, and that's what good science is doing, is just observing those causal relationships, okay? Because science has an, a, a defined kind of parameters about what it is. I don't want scientists theologizing. That's why I have a problem with Darwinian evolution when it, when it goes outside of the the bounds of what it's supposed to do. Okay, it is not supposed to tell me about God. It is not supposed to tell me about the origin of life. That's not that's not how it works. Okay, so you can you can say yeah, this is cause and effect how it works, but that does not that's not doing theology, right? So we, we kind of keep those things. And that's you know, there's another what's his name, J. P. Moreland. Um, he's got a great book. I think it's just called Christianity and Science, and it's a it's it's thick. So don't you know be warned. But he goes into like a whole philosophy of science um, and what is science, what is science meant to do, what is it not meant to do, what is theology, what is it meant to do, those things, are they in conflict with one another, things like that. So it's really helpful, um, and I never want to read it again. So, uh, It's J.P. Moreland. He's written a ton of stuff. So if this like science stuff and philosophy stuff, he's great. He is at Biola, I think, is he? Yeah. Um, 
So J.P. Moreland, and I think it's something Christianity and science, I think is what it's called. Um, and then we've got a book out there that I haven't read that's called Redeeming Science. That looks good. So somebody read that and tell me if it's good. Okay, one more question. You mean like physical law, like gravity and, yeah, things like that, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of goes back to, you know, the argument for the fine-tuning argument. Uh, you know, I think the best argument for that is kind of an anthropic multiverse. Lots of chances, lots of probability. Boy, aren't we lucky that we ended up in this one that got it right kind of thing, yeah. But, yeah, but that's the same idea. It's like the, of the fine-tuning argument that these laws that hold everything and govern everything and are even in themselves unbreakable, right? Imply that, um, yeah, I, I would think that implies that there's somebody turning all of the dials. Yeah. Okay, let's take one more break. Um, we'll do another five-minute break, and then we will get into our last lesson. <laughs>